1: People say life is a journey, not a destination. But how do you know you're on the right path? If only we could see the signs when they appear. Well, I'm Mimi Kwa. And I'm Jo Stanley. And on A to B, we speak to fascinating people about how they navigated their way to be here now, having profound
2: impact on the world. We hope our conversations will help you reflect on everything you've been through to get here. The triumphs, challenges and bumps along the road. And if you haven't already, find your own map to what
1: matters.
3: I was a wolfie when the 1998 Patrick's Dispute happened. They moved mercenaries in on the wharf in the middle of the night and physically dragged us from the cranes and locked us out of our livelihoods. I was 20-year-old with three little babies. Tough. It was tough. So it was through all of that I learnt about injustices. I learnt to speak up. And then I began to apply that to my own people's struggles.
2: Thomas Mayo is one of the First Nation's leaders who has led the Yes campaign in Australia's historic referendum for constitutional recognition.
1: I first met him when he was speaking at the Bendigo Writers Festival and he actually recited the Uluru Statement from the heart to a packed audience and it was so moving, there was not a dry eye in the house. Everyone gave him a standing ovation. It was amazing.
2: And Mimi, there is so much misunderstanding around what a voice to Parliament even means and Thomas's mission has been to make it clear and simplify his message and he has such intention around this. So it begs the question, how do we know when we're called to something much bigger and greater than ourselves and how do we heed that call to give over and truly be of service to history? This
1: is a powerful conversation about equity, reconciliation, and a little boy who barely spoke up in class and is now leading the movement of a nation.
2: We hope you love this conversation as much as we did.
1: Thomas Mayo, welcome to A to B. We are so excited to have you here because Joe and I can honestly not think of anything more important than what you were doing. So You've had such a journey over the last six years. Who have you met? What have you been doing? I know that's a really big question, but what are some of the highlights? I suppose since you were entrusted with carrying the statement from the heart across Australia.
3: Yeah, well, it's been a long journey. Uh, at this point, it's more than six years uh, I've been working on this campaign, which leads to this opportunity where Australians will have the opportunity to answer the invitation that is in the order statement from the heart and. The the Uluru Statement for the listeners was made in 2017, and it was the culmination of 12 regional dialogues covering the entire continent and adjacent islands. It was 100 participants, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, 100 participants, not to exclude anyone, but to ensure a cross-section of experiences and perspectives, different types of advocates, not just the loudest of our people, but the quieter healers and uh, service workers, you know, those on the front line of of that important work. And uh, after all of those dialogues, we elected delegates and we came together, the delegates at Uluru in the heart of the nation to bring together uh, basically the priority set in those dialogues, what sort of constitutional recognition Indigenous people would like to see. And, uh, and we brought it together in one collective statement, and that's the Uluru Statement. Um, it was dismissed almost immediately by the government, but we predicted that. It was one of the lessons that go into the Uluru Statement, that we've had many statements and petitions before, uh, all written to kings and queens or parliament that have ignored these petitions and statements, that have all called for a voice um, over and over again. And so this time, this statement was written to the Australian people and, um, and so when I was dismissed, I was entrusted with the canvas that the statement is written on and the artwork is printed on. I encourage people to have a look at the beautiful image of that statement. And, um, and we built a people's movement and we didn't take no for an answer. Uh, we know that we need a voice because it'll be a practical thing to improve our lives. We know that we deserve constitutional recognition because as science says, we've been here for over 60,000 years, let alone our artwork and stories that confirm all of this. Um, And so, uh, you know, we're we're now at a point where a government is allowing the people to respond and that's what a referendum is. So
2: you then toured around the country, essentially, with this sacred document. And and to Mimi's point, what was that like? Did you meet people? Was there a moment that you have carried with you since then that really struck you and, and, and sort of, you know, you hold in your heart?
3: Yeah I think well firstly the the moment when the Uluru statement was endorsed at Uluru there was 270 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people there and there were there were some you know real warriors uh, leaders um you know people that had done some significant work in trying to improve our, our standing in this country and our people's lives people like Uncle Sol Belair, who's since passed on, but he was one of the leaders that established the first medical service in Redfern. Um, you know, Arnie Pat Anderson, who was a you know a, a leader in the health space and um, has done um, and was the co-chair of the uh, process that led to the Uluru Statement. You know, just just some really wonderful people. Uh, John Christofferson, uh, you know, a leader in the Northern Territory from Kakadu, from Arnhem Land. Tony Warramarba. Marba. Uh, the chair of the Anandiliakwa Land Council on Groot Island, just some really, really significant Indigenous leaders. And to stand with them and endorse it, 250 of 270 endorsed it. A handful of our people walked out, you know, in protest. That's normal politics, right? We're not homogenous. We don't all agree on things. But, But that was the most significant moment for me because it was difficult to reach a consensus. The nature of consensus is that it's not everything that everybody wants. But I think it's found the balance, you know. Some people are saying it's too powerful a proposal, this voice. Some people are saying it's too weak, but really it's it's right down the middle. It's an advisory body. But traveling then with the statement, uh, the first place I took it to was Gurindji country. When I picked it up from, uh, it had been painted in Wattachulu, the community close to Uluru. Uh, went to the Gam'a Festival in Arnhem Land, and that's where I picked it up from. Uh, took it to uh, the Gurindji mob, the anniversary of the Wakefield walk-off, which is in 1966, Uh, 200 aboriginal stock workers and domestics and their families walked off wayfield station because they were only being paid in rations so it's just some flour and tobacco basically they were doing 16 hour days it was basically slavery that they were protesting they say it was about equal wages Uh, You've no doubt heard the song by Kevin Carmody and Paul Kelly from Little Things, Big Things Growing. That Mm. song is about that. But that was the first place I took it to, met those elders and leaders. You know, said that we got to ride a Uluru. then to Lumberdina and the Kimberley, a big meeting of traditional owners there, uh, Yule River Bush meeting in the Pilbara, and then just crisscrossed the country for for the last six years, really, just um, helping people to understand what it calls for. Um, It's been a great experience.
2: You know, it strikes me that um, this is a, a podcast about, you know, origin stories and the making of who we are, right? And for me, this is such a moment in time for Australia. This is a historic moment where we get to choose what kind of nation we want to live in, right? And I see that image of you standing next to the prime minister. Like what a moment in time when he was announcing that there's going to be a referendum. Do you remember standing next to the prime minister and thinking, I'm a part of history? (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah it was uh it, it took a lot of work uh is what i was thinking about like um i mean the the emotions for me really came about because of the hard work that had been done to reach this point and you know so there was the hard work that my ancestors and elders did to create the lessons that go into the statement, to learn from our mistakes to learn from what had been tried and what had failed to learn from uh the games that politicians will play with our lives you know these sorts of things to learn from the voices that we'd established that had been silenced by hostile governments and and how important the voice is to taking our people forward that was a lot of hard work in itself and then for us to have the debate and discussion to you know in an informed way make the most of that unique opportunity that we had which was to come together after such a well, you know, uh, such a um, well-formulated process of consensus building, uh, that was hard work too. And then the negotiations themselves. So when the the morning that I was standing with the Prime Minister and a whole lot of other Indigenous leaders, we'd done months of work to negotiate uh, what words would go into the constitution with, you know, an expert group of constitutional experts, um, you know, former chief high justices and, you know, the most respected uh, constitutional academics. And we negotiated what the question would be and, and the words and, and reached a an, another agreement, really. And that was, that was uh, so emotional because I believe that we found words that Indigenous people could say is true to what the Uluru Statement called for. Um, it gives us a guarantee of a say, but in a way that is both constitutionally sound and... Um, could be accepted in a referendum and uh, you know we'll we'll find that out soon but i think australians will vote yes the only reason they'd vote no is if they're confused and um, if the fear mongers get through to to you know to make them scared of change
1: and that leads me to this idea that the Antidote to fear and anger and doubt can only be trust. And so you've written this handbook to try to cultivate trust in those people who do have fear or have doubt about the yes campaign and what it means to vote yes in a referendum. Is that what you see as the way to overcome people's fear around it? Is just is it just by making a watertight argument the way that you have?
3: Yeah, it's it's a tool, I think. The the voice to parliament handbook of all the details you need that Kerry. O'Brien and I have written to help people I think give the antidote to people to use your terminology because I think the antidote is you know is love and care I think that if people have conversations with others you know with people who trust them and say I've taken the time to understand this I can answer your concerns in a respectful way in an informed way and and say to others I have bothered to look into this and I am going to be voting yes uh, because I believe that it's safe but also important to our nation and to Indigenous people, then I think most people will just need that, you know, to quell their fears. Someone that they love saying to them, um, I've looked into this, I can answer any concerns you've got, I'm voting yes, vote yes with me.
1: I'm going to quote the Dalai Lama here because I know Joe loves when I bring out a quote from the Dalai Lama. Love it. I may need to check my sources. (laughs) He says to accept what we cannot change and change what we cannot accept. So we're really dying to know, Thomas Mayo, what is it that made you the type of person who wants to change what you cannot accept?
3: Well, obviously, firstly, my family is impacted by, you know, the realities of the traumas that we carry from colonisation, so the genocide that followed, uh, the forced assimilation, you know, those really harmful discriminatory policies. And uh, and prejudice every day, you know that uh, you know when you look at what happened to that young fellow in WA not that long ago, you know that you know on the basis of my children being indigenous and that uh, something like that could happen just because they are you know indigenous that these are these are these are real impacts on on my life and my children's life today that I believe when Australians. Uh, unify around this, you know, and, and there's people trying to make this divisive, but really it's a unifying moment that we're talking about here. Accepting that we have an indigenous heritage as Australians, you know, accepting that there is this gap that we must do something different to change, which is to uh, guarantee a voice in the constitution. Uh, I think that's going to go such a long way to you know stop racism, and it's always going to be there. You can never get rid of racism altogether. It's something that uh, is always around, but I think with that acceptance, that unifying moment, that saying yes, we we you know we believe that Indigenous people are part of who we are as Australians and something we should celebrate. Uh, that that's going to improve our lives in in that way, in such a, a symbolic way. You know, not just a practical way that I talked about where a voice influences policies and laws.
2: Mm. Thomas, we would really. You know, we want to understand what has brought you to this moment in your time because you are a powerful leader. You're having a huge impact on our country and we're thankful to you for what really is a lot of sacrifice. You're away from your family and your children as you lead us towards what we hope is a yes. So, I I mean, even as you talk about your origin stories as, as a people, most of us don't have as a part of our origin our relatives or our ancestors being dispossessed or persecuted or that generational trauma of genocide that you speak of, I can't even begin to fathom the impact of that on you as a person. Are you able to give us some kind of insight into what you carry because of that history?
3: Uh, I'm a very practical person. So I think about, you know, I've already mentioned what it means to my family and everything. And then I look at what how it affects other people. And you look at the, the statistics, you know, that we should be ashamed of as Australians, let alone just as an Indigenous, you know, like a problem that's just Indigenous peoples alone. You know, Indigenous people have uh, a life expectancy gap of almost 10 years. You know, I think it's eight years. And as the Uluru Statement from the Heart says, proportionately, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet and it's fact checked and it checks out proportionately the most incarcerated people on the planet are the indigenous peoples of our country, you know, has, and I shouldn't have to say this, but it has nothing to do with uh, my culture or my DNA, you know, my children, uh, you know, can understand the difference between right or wrong the same as any other child that's loved and taught and cared for, you know, this, this shouldn't be the case in Australia. I'm motivated by the practical change that this will provide, you know. This is a matter of, the Uluru Statement says, um, these dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We see constitutional change to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish, they will walk in two worlds, and their culture will be a gift to their country. That's why we call for a voice, because it's a structural and political problem, not a matter of indigenous people, ourselves, our culture, our heritage, our, um, our, our, our lack of humanity. It can be fixed with a voice, and that's what motivates me, uh, just the pure logic of that, you know, and the desire to get change.
1: You're helping to bring a voice to a whole people, but when did you find your voice, Thomas? Because you'd spoken about as a child, you didn't speak out and you were very quiet.
3: Yeah, very quiet follow even as a young adult. Um, you know, people thought I didn't have a voice at all. I was so quiet, footy or in the workplace. But uh, I think, well, I know, I, I found my voice really, firstly, because I'm moved by injustice. So I just can't stand to, you know, I've never been able to, someone being mistreated sort of thing um but then on the on the wharves uh, I was a wharfie from when I was 17 years old and I learned about organizing you know I learned about uh how to help each other to stick together to to bring your voices together and get change and and so you know on the wharves you know my union the maritime Union of Australia we didn't use our strength of unity to just leverage you know decent wages and conditions but There's a long history of uh, unions supporting social justice struggle. And in particular, the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And so, you know, I began to learn about politics. I began to learn about working together, you know, as a collective. I learned about injustices. I was on the wharf when the 1998 Patrick's dispute happened, which is just uh, briefly for those that don't know about it. Basically, the the Howard government at the time colluded with Patrick Stevedores and they moved mercenaries in on the walk in the middle of the night and physically dragged us from the cranes and forklifts and locked us out of our livelihoods. I was 20-year-old with three little babies. So it was through all of that that I I learned to speak up and I learned about sticking together. Uh, And then I began to apply that to my own people's struggles. Like when Tony Abbott was the Prime Minister in 2015, he cut hundreds of millions of dollars from services to remote Aboriginal communities. And I'll just say this for the listeners, if you think about the repercussions of these sorts of decisions, you think about, you know, and and we hear it in the news a lot at the moment to try and discredit, you know, our push for a voice, which is quite ironic because a voice is about resolving issues. But if people talk about the youth crime in Alice Springs, for example, which when you think about the decision to cut services to people with fetal alcohol syndrome you know, that have already have issues with domestic violence, which again, isn't a matter of our indigenous culture or anything. It's a matter of poverty. You know, these things are, you know, more prevalent where you have these, you know, where there is poverty and trauma is carried from generation to generation and a loss of hope, you know, unemployment, low education, but the impact that that decision had is felt in those communities still today with the, you know, it, it made things worse. And so, uh, Yeah, uh, got more involved in those sorts of uh, issues and um, it it brings us to where we are today. You know, a voice would be, is the way to close the gap?
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
2: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. What about you personally, though, Thomas? If you're someone who, as a child right up to being a young adult, didn't, say much, was pretty quietly spoken or, you know, kept your thoughts to yourself. Was there someone for you that you could speak to, a person that you did confide in that was really important to you?
3: Yeah, the old workmates for me uh, were very important in those days. You know, people that had been involved in taking supplies to the Gurindji mob during the Wayfield walk-off in the 60s and 70s. It was it was important to sort of learn that history and, and understand things, but also my own family, you know, elders and uncles, talking to them about culture and uh, history as well. Um, they've, they've really shaped me over the years.
1: You've really found your voice through writing as well, haven't you? I mean, that started out as your real voice to a broader audience beyond just your work community. So how did the writing start?
3: Well, I'd been travelling... With the Uru Statement Canvas, the physical sacred document that I was entrusted with for about 12 months, you know, almost without a break. And because I never left it sitting in my hotel room or in my cupboard at home, I was just constantly rolling this out in front of conferences or even small groups of half a dozen people and met all these wonderful people that had different ways of understanding the Uru Statement and why they supported it always uh Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people some that you know like many that nobody had ever heard of in these little communities so I thought I've got to share this experience and these photos that I've got of people standing you know posing with the statement and everything and I thought I would do a little colorful picture book with short interviews but i would never written before and I rang Marcia Langton and I said I got this idea for this book and Marcia said it's a good idea you know because Marcia had just written Welcome to Country so she hooked me up with a publisher and next thing you know, I've started. I've never done an interview before. Or anything I've never written, you know, more than a newsletter, and uh, and it's two hundred and sixty something pages. The book, Finding the Heart of the Nation, mm-hmm. a narrative. But you see, I got the confidence to do that. I think way back in year eleven, when an English teacher, uh, I got an A for a descriptive test that I did because I'd sort of clicked in my mind. I oh, just do some big words and you know uh, that sort of thing, and I'll I'll go all right, and I got an A. But she encouraged me. She said, I would write. It. I should write a book one day. I never believed it. And when I had the, the thing that I believed in enough to get stuck into it and I had the opportunity, I went away and did it.
1: Have you reached out to her? Has she read your book?
3: I've tried to find her. Her name is Miss Arthur. If anyone knows her, she taught at Casuarina College in Darwin back in 1993, I think it was. Uh, so, yeah, I would love to get in touch with her.
2: Isn't it beautiful that you, through... This incredible work of voice to parliament, Uluru Statement of the Heart, you found your voice. You found your, an access to what has been inside you all along.
3: Yeah, it is. You know, like who would have thought, eh? Yeah, quite <laughs> a <bit of> skinny <laughs> Thomas. Miss Arthur? You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Arthur Yeah, Miss Arthur, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, it's pretty incredible to think of that.
1: It is. I mean, look at you now. You think back to your young, formative years, and you talked a lot about how you played sport and how you were really a part of your family and community. But now you are part of a much bigger family, a bigger community, and you're doing something that's actually impacting not only Indigenous people in Australia and beyond, not only the entire Australian population, but you are impacting the world.
3: Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you should have liked that. <laughs> No, I'm just doing what I think is right. That's all, um, day by day. As I uh, said before, we start with the podcast. I don't stress easy. You know, I just I tell myself just to do my best. But actually, in, in on the topic of you know what this podcast is, uh, you know the theme of the podcast. I mean this is what I tell young people now that uh, you know they might feel like they're doing a dead end job sort of thing. You know, something that's not really glamorous or amounting to anything. But it all adds up and. You now what I found when I wrote that first book and found myself having to tell my own story to give context to the whole thing, that all those little things that I did, you know, when it when you bring it together, it's something unique and it's something that's powerful if you just keep taking those opportunities and doing your best.
2: What's one of those little things that you now look back and go, Wow, that's really at the time I thought it was a nothing and it was actually really a big part of the puzzle that makes me?
3: Yeah. Oh, I guess Firstly, becoming a delegate on the wharf, you know, and just doing what I thought was right for my fellow workers. It was formative, you know, to have to stand up to uh, a boss at the time that was quite intimidating and, uh, you know, and quite tactical in the way that he tried to, you know, split us apart and undermine us, uh, you know, the experiences of doing that. Tough. It was tough. You know, especially after the big 98 Patrick's dispute, it was hard work. Uh, felt lonely at times maybe that's what gives me my calm now you know like um but then also uh, to go back actually growing up my father always told me I was stupid basically he often told me that when I got something a bit wrong and uh and you know just uh that in itself has probably shaped me maybe that's why I'm calm you know and uh but then just sort of moments where I've gotten things done things that I can be proud of you know even if it's small things like um, helping a worker on the job in my early 20s and working out, slowly working out. Actually, I do have some brains, you know. <laughs> I can actually write a book, you know. I can actually represent people and articulate things and it's just, yeah, just bit by bit.
1: Has your relationship with your father, and it sounds like he was pretty tough on you, which obviously could have been personal to him or just a generational thing as well, Has that relationship and how that shaped you really informed the way you relate to your children?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was definitely partly a generational thing, you know. Um, He was of the time of Torres Strait Islanders that were famously hard workers, right? Torres Strait Islanders have the world record for laying track, railway track in the Pilbara, you know, in the heat of the Pilbara, just um, hard workers. And that's like my dad has an attitude of just getting on with things. So very much, you know, of his time. Um, although my auntie's is dad's i he's harsher than, you know, I don't know, he was harsher than the others. <laughs> they feel a bit sorry for me now. They said, oh, I wish we hadn't said something back then. But, you know, he always had my best interests in mind. You know, that was just his way of trying to make sure that uh, I would have a good life. You know, he didn't want me to fail. He didn't want me to, you know, do stupid things because he understood that the world wouldn't love me like he did, you know, type of thing. And, uh, and I've written a book called Dear Son, you know, that explores mm. these things. Dear Son. Uh, reflections from First Nations fathers and sons. And to analyse all of that, you know, it was um, very healing. We still have a great relationship, my dad and I. He's still grumpy and everything, Um, (laughs) but uh, love him a lot.
1: Your dad would carry a lot of intergenerational trauma as well. He was born before Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders were even recognised as Australian citizens. So what sort of impact do you think all of that had on him and how that played out in his parenting?
3: Yeah, no, I mean, it's certainly had an influence on his, his own parenting. You know, I mean, he was so arched because he was afraid for me, I think. But what I do, I didn't answer your question before because I ramble on and get lost. But, um, <laughs> but how I transfer these lessons on to my kids, I think, is what's important. You know, I think, you know, understanding ourselves and keeping an open mind to why people were, you know, are the way they are or do the things they do. I think that's something important to teach our children. And, and that's what I try and do now. Uh, I was a single father for a couple of years, and um, and learned a lot through doing that myself. You know, I had some terrible attitudes that I had myself. You know, gender roles and all this sort of stuff that i have learned better. You know, an example of that terrible attitude was that when my son got to a certain age, I wouldn't hold his hand in public. I said, "You're too old to hold my hand in public now." You know, you're a boy, and you know, I'm you know, we shouldn't be holding hands anymore, which was just so terrible. You know, and it's and so. Basically, I, you know, it's something that I uh, have learnt And to conclude the letter, I said, you know, and I'm going to hold your hand, you know, it's like 23 now. I don't think they want to hold my hand, but, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know.
2: I have been forever shaped by my daughter, as I'm sure all parents are by their kids. How have you been shaped by your kids?
3: Oh, geez, so much. One thing I'll share is I remember when I first, my first child was born, Shayla, and uh i was a crane driver you know and all the big machines down the wharf and work at heights and stuff like that and up in the big crane the the container crane they looked like a big giraffe you know those harbor cranes and i was up there and, and i was never scared of anything you know sort of thing and i just remember this shift in my mind when my first child was born and suddenly i felt every bump and you know and and i don't know what that was but maybe you have this thing where you you naturally start to Think more deeply about surviving, so you can look out to your kids and everything. I don't know, I don't know. Yes. That's interesting story or not.
1: That is, I remember as soon as I had my first child, I couldn't read the news when I was a news anchor without crying in the break because everything affected me so much more.
3: Does change That's your my mindset,
1: mortality hey? was something that I considered on a daily basis. So I totally get it.
2: Oh, it makes so much sense. You know, I also really love when we read about your story, Thomas, and you know, this conversation is always about putting together the pieces that make you who you are right now. So I'm wondering about your physicality. You know, you were a rugby player. I know that you you learned island dances. You were a, a, a labourer. Like, do you feel that you carry a bit of your identity in your body?
3: Yeah, I guess so. I don't know.
2: <laughs> like how you move um, or how you hold uh, yourself?
3: Oh, uh, yeah, I'm pretty masculine and stuff. I like to keep fit. You know, I love rugby. I love taking people on, you know, and all that. And, Yes, that does play out in the rough and tumble of this campaign. You know, sometimes when I'm standing in front of people and I know some of them are hostile, I do my best to not be intimidated by that sort of stuff, you know. Um, I I feel like uh, also... For such a cross-section, you know, Australia is all sorts of people. And so I'm able to mix it with, uh, you know, blue-collar people, you know, sort of labourer workers. Like I was just talking to a bunch of workers this morning from, uh, you know, a male-dominated industry. and and But at the same time communicating, you know, business meetings and all the rest.
1: So, Thomas, what's just come up for me is... Is there a sense of drawing on your ancestry, the Torres Strait Islander ancestry, the Aboriginal ancestry and the past? I mean, it's 60,000 years. We are here now, but that's 60 millennia of history that walks with you.
3: Yeah, no, it definitely makes me walk taller. Being connected to my culture and, and understanding it and knowing it, um, living and breathing it, it makes me think, you know, of, of how we can help Indigenous children by, you know, helping them to connect with culture and be proud of who they are. I mean, we see it, you know, I mean, uh, even the experts will tell you that that makes a difference in, you know, how a child progresses through life and contributes to society. You know, I think about how uh, the incarceration rates or, you know, the statistics around children in detention in the Northern Territory, um, almost all of the time, 100% of the children in the youth detention facilities like Don Dale, which is still open and encourage people to have a look at what Don Dale, what happened there in 2016, what was exposed. But almost all of the time, all of the children are indigenous and uh, you know, treating them the way that we treat children as young as 10 at the moment only makes things worse and we we really need to do better about helping children to connect with culture, to give them that spring in their step and feel proud and and, uh, be better contributors to society.
1: What is your sense of being? You've stepped into a very, very strong and powerful purpose in this life. So what is it to be Thomas Mayo? And actually, we should actually segue into the fact that you were actually Thomas Mayer not long ago. Mm.
3: Well, firstly, yes, I was Thomas Mayer last year. I've changed my name to Mayo, M-A-Y-O, instead sort of took off the R from the end, because my father's generation, uh, when they were christened, when he was... Older brother was christened. The priest said that uh, our name was spelt wrong, and it should be Mayor with the R. And uh, late last year, at a ceremony, a tombstone unveiling ceremony, which is a very special ceremony in Torres Strait culture, my cousins and I sort of noted that my grandma and and other elders they were still Mayo, you know, on their headstones, and we decided to change it back to Mayo. But what is it to be Thomas Mayo? I don't know. I just do what I think is right from day to day. You know, people probably think I'm more strategic than I am, but uh, all I'm doing is just following my heart, uh, doing what I know is right and doing my best.
1: What would you say to your younger self as well, who had no idea you would one day be where you are now?
3: Jeez, I really would like to say to my younger self to believe in myself and that I'm not stupid. Uh, and to have started to do, you know, some of the things that I've done earlier than I did, you know, more time to make a difference.
2: Oh my gosh, you started in the union movement when you're in your early 20s. That's pretty
3: good. <laughs> yeah, you know, I suppose. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, my mum said this to me. I, I say I was a quiet fella and not very confident. my mum says, well, actually, you know, you sort of did put yourself out there and do this, you know, at basketball and in this at rugby, you know, you were the captain and blah, blah, blah. And like, yeah, so. It's it's-
2: like, that's a good
1: storytelling.
3: <laughs> <it was> <laughs> no, but I'm not talking, I'm not talking rubbish though, you know, I mean, it's, it's just that that's how I feel about myself.
2: The extraordinary courage that you must have in you. Like in like, you must have extraordinary inner courage to be able to be a quiet person, yet still take on that role of leader in the unions and on the wharfs and all that. Like that's not easy.
3: Yeah, and I guess we're all quiet. You know, we all think of ourselves as quiet. We're all unsure of ourselves, most of us. But you know, that's what I tell my young self. You know, be more sure of yourself. I don't know. I love. Maybe it. that's a quality though to be a bit unsure. Yeah. Mm. And to be not so confident.
1: What do you say to your kids, Thomas? What advice do you give to them?
3: Oh, I just encourage them to do. Yeah, for example, my young fellow wants to go to uh, a fancy boarding school, you know, and uh, none of you know uh, our other kids or us have had an opportunity like that. but he's keen as you know he's seen all the opportunities, uh, the activities and all that sort of stuff, and um, I just want to support them in what they want to do, and I think uh, they can find their way then as long as you're there to love and support them. you know you guys are parents. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Well, That's between us, us they be right? yeah.
3: children. It's you. Between
2: oh, right. us, okay. I only have one. Yeah. Mimi has four, so she's it's really brought. She's oh. carrying a load there. So, <laughs>
3: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Good on you. That's it.
2: Hey, so we have a little feature on the podcast, Thomas, where we share the origin story of a well-known thing, right? Um, and uh, we mm. it's a bit of a surprise and delight because. One of us will surprise the others with it. Mimi doesn't know what I'm bringing here today. Um, But in this instance, what I'm sharing is an origin story of a saying, like a well-known saying, which I, I actually used the other day and I thought to myself, I wonder where that came from. I will reveal the saying as I tell you the story, okay? So it's 1807. There was a man called William Cobbett. He was a journalist but actually didn't really share. Like he wasn't writing the news. He was an opinion writer. And he actually wasn't published by the newspapers. He had his own weekly publication called Political Register. So you can imagine he was an opinion writer writing his own opinions about politics of the day. I think we all know journalists, inverted commas, who publish their own opinions in the the daily papers. I feel like, Yes. yes, you get the sense of what this guy was like to the point where actually he was known as Peter Porcupine because he was so aggressive in the way it would take people down in his uh, publications. Anyway, it's 1807, so we need to acknowledge it's a devastating time in Australia for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people because it's 19 years after Invasion Day. Um, Also in Europe, the Napoleonic Wars are taking place, and the newspapers mistakenly announced that Napoleon had been defeated, when actually he hadn't. It was actually fake news And Peter Porcupine accused them of deliberately distracting from the real issues of the day with this fake news. Again, time hasn't changed much. And to explain what was going on, he used this story of him as a boy where he used a particularly smelly fish as a decoy to deflect hounds from chasing after a hare. And he said that fish was a red herring. So... He was the first person to use that's a red herring as a way of describing, deflecting from actually what is going on with a whole bunch of other rubbish, right? Red herring. Wow. I thought you were going to go with porky pies and
3: Yeah, I was thinking porky pie too. Yeah.
2: No, red herring, right? Because that's what they used to do. They used red herring because it's particularly smelly to throw the hounds off a scent, right? And so he used that as a, this is a red herring, this fake news. And I bring that up actually, Thomas, because to bring it back to the yes vote, we are just being inundated with red herrings, aren't we? With the fear mongers, with with the untruths about what the voice to parliament will be around, you know, how it's going to be. up. Yeah, they are porcupines, but, you know, like they're all all this notion of it being um, a constitutional minefield and how it's just, you know, opening a can of worms and all this sort of stuff. We really need to remain focused on the truth as a matter, don't we?
1: And it's been so overcomplicated, hasn't it? I mean, all you were trying to do, Thomas, is just simplify things because it is so simple, isn't it?
3: Well, it is. It's not complete. It's uh, a modest proposal to recognise Indigenous people in our founding document by giving us a guarantee that we can have a say about matters that relate to us. Not a third chamber of parliament, not a right to veto, not going to see the wheels of government grind to a halt. The greatest constitutional experts have debunked all of those myths. It's just recognition with a voice.
2: It's a say on matters that are going to impact Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and to and to recognize recognizing the constitution i mean what kind of country do we want to live in
3: you know this is a really important point there's we're the only like nation that doesn't have constitutional recognition of indigenous peoples or a treaty the only we we're actually catching up here it's not even anything new we're just catching up with the rest of the, you know the first world sort of countries in in this world here
1: Plus we pride ourselves on so many things in Australia and yet we're so behind in this.
3: Yeah, yeah, we can do better. Australia, let's vote yes.
2: Oh, I think we need to leave it on that very powerful message, Mimi, do you think? I think so.
1: Thomas Mayo, you are just an extraordinary human being doing what you are doing for the Indigenous people of Australia, for the entire Australian population. I know that I've said this before, but I cannot put too fine a point on it. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for doing what you are doing. We have been so honoured to sit with you today and hold space for your story, Your A to B.
3: Thank you, Mimi. Thank you, Joe.
2: Thank you for listening. We love you joining us for our A to B chats.
1: Please see our show notes for our Acknowledgement of Country and all the people who help us put this podcast together as well as interesting links to our guest's work and other references that we've mentioned.
2: (laughs) Such as your uh, unverified frequent Dalai Lama quotes. Oh yes, I still need to check those. (laughs) So we are Joe and Mimi from A to B Get in touch and let us know who a to B you'd like to find out about
1: and we cannot wait for you to hear our next conversation.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50